begin our Bhagavad Gita thought made. This is the last class on Bhagavad Gita, last uh, four chapters. So here we go. Um, the first several verses of chapter 15, uh, Krishna describes an upside down tree. So that's what this is. A bit impressionistic. Envision an upside down tree. So, um, Krishna says, Urdhva Dakshaka, the roots go upward, the branches go down. It's a banyan tree. Have you ever seen a banyan tree? Like down south Florida? It's labyrinthian. So, uh, so what is this tree? It's been understood uh, forever by the tradition that. Well, that's why these three lines is a banyan tree. So uh, the idea is that imagine if this is a, a um, clear reflecting surface, like a lake, a clear lake. And so you have a tree growing on the lake, and then you have a reflected tree. And so it's actually the reflected tree whose branches go downward and the roots go up. So in philosophical Sanskrit, where everybody talks about this, Bimba, not Bimbo, but Bimba means an, <laughs> means an object. It must be called <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so Bimba is an object. And uh, in Sanskrit, Prati. Prati means like counter, so the counter object, which means the reflection. And so, uh, when I discussed this one time when I was an undergraduate at the University of California, and in a particular class, the professor said, well, that sounds like Neoplatonism. So the basic idea here is that this world, the world that we're experiencing now, in which all the, you could say, not spiritual, but, um, well, in a sense, let's say the Buddhists, I don't know if they would like to be called spiritual, but but all the groups that say you have to transcend our ordinary experience of this world. The way we see the world in ordinary consciousness is not really it. There's a lot more there. That's not the real truth of it. So, in all these groups, the Buddhists, the, the, the various forms of Buddhist, uh, Hindu philosophy, agree that the world that we ordinarily experience it, uh, it is just the surface. It's merely the surface. And so, what Krishna is teaching here, according to the tradition, is that this world is not the highest truth, but it actually is a somewhat reliable, in some ways, reflection of the truth. So that your, let's say, what is called false ego, a hankara in Hindu philosophy, the, the false sense of self that the Buddhists were so concerned with, is false. And it's taking the body to be the self, like I'm an American, or I'm male, or I'm so many years old, or I'm a certain size, or a certain race, or whatever. All these different features of the body that I take to be myself, like I'm an American, I'm so many years old, I have a particular gender or size or whatever, or race, that's the false ego, the Greek word ego simply meaning I, it's just the Greek pronoun I, but, there, but it's a reflection. So the false sense of self is merely a reflection of the real self, and the real self actually exists. So that in this world, let's say if you're a nature lover, uh, you like beautiful natural scenes. The idea would be that there is a real nature. And actually that's the word Krishna uses in the Gita in chapter 7. 
Uh, the word prakriti is a very common word meaning nature. And Krishna says in the Gita chapter 7, there is an apara, uh, an inferior and a para, a superior nature. So that nature, you know, trees, birds, houses, everything, is the, in this world, the apara, the inferior nature, but there is a real superior nature, a real spiritual world. And uh, so that's the idea here. So here it's talked about in a different way. There's a tree whose branches go downward, actually begins urdvamula, the roots go upward. And so the roots are going up because this is the reflection of the real tree. So it's an analogy for the entire world, it's a metaphor that the whole universe, the whole world, is merely reflection. And to extend it into the realm of psychology, the, the Buddhist uh, preoccupation with suffering and psychological states, obviously if you're hungry and you try to pick fruits off the reflection of a tree, you're not going to have a great meal. And you're not going to be satisfied. You have to find the real tree. It's like, I mean, I saw one, what was it, some movie where uh, I think it was... Uh, Hook. Huh? In Hook, they have like the imagination oh. meal. Oh, well actually it's a different movie, but that's probably another good example. <laughs> where uh, people who were lonely could uh, buy these sort of these holograms of dates. Like if you wanted a beautiful girl, you could actually like design it, or if you wanted a guy and you kind of, you know, on your computer, and then they would send you kind of like this hologram model. And so, I mean, most people wouldn't find this emotionally satisfying, no matter how well programmed the computer was. So, the idea is that uh, you have to find, that if, you, if you're hungry, you have to find the real tree and the real fruit. The idea being we're suffering, not because, I mean, the Buddhists would say we're suffering because, or at least some Buddhist schools would say we're suffering because we think we are persons or we're suffering because we want to be happy. In fact, one of the illusions, one of the problems that causes suffering for the Buddhists is the desire to exist. Seeking, just, just wanting to exist is a problem. You shouldn't want to exist. That's one of the big issues. But here, the idea would be, no, it's natural that you want to exist because you do exist. And so desiring to exist is simply expressing your own nature. It's not necessarily a bad desire. And in fact, uh, the problem is not that we feel that we are persons, that we consider that we have an individual nature. The problem is we've misunderstood ourselves and we're trying to eat the mere reflections of the fruit. If we can find the real tree and the real fruits, we can actually be satisfied with ourselves and with other people and satisfied with life if we just find the real object rather than the reflection, which is just the material surface of reality. So that's the, the first point there in that chapter. Any questions on that? It's a, it's a philosophical position which is certainly not exclusive to the Bhagavad Gita. As I said, in classical civilization, uh, there were many thinkers that, that had a similar idea that this world... The reflection also tells you a lot about the real tree. Even though it's merely reflection, it tells you, it gives you all kinds of reliable information if you understand it as a reflection. When you look at a mirror, there's a good mirror and you look at it, it gives you very reliable information, sometimes too reliable or too accurate, but it gives us very accurate information about what at least our outer surface looks like. So if you take the image in the mirror to be a real person, you may be entering into psychopathology. But if you actually consider the image to be a separate person. But if you understand the image to be an image, then it's giving you a lot of very useful information. That's why people use mirrors. 
Yes. The, in, the information it's giving is like, is it giving it because it's an inverted reflection? Like because it's it's re because, no, because it is a reflection. A mirror is also inverted because, you know, your right hand becomes your left hand in the reflection. Still, if you compensate for that and remember that it's only a reflection, it's actually giving you a lot of very useful information. So according to this view, your ordinary experience of this world is giving you all kinds of useful information about a spiritual world. You simply have to keep in mind that this is merely reflection. So that your sense of existing as a real person is actually correct. It's simply that we have to see our real self and not the mere reflection of ourself, which is seeing ourselves as a body, as a physical body, rather than seeing ourselves as an eternal soul, an eternal personal soul. So that, that's this whole, and this, this is a very important part of, of this whole way of teaching, the idea of the, uh, the real object and the reflection. And similarly, I mean to extend this a bit, when we celebrate in the sense of recognize as celebrities, certain very fallible uh, human beings uh, actually, this is merely a reflection of the real celebrity which belongs to the Supreme Consciousness, or to God. And so we are, in a sense, uh, substituting, trying to replace the real leader with, you know, people who are very fallible and, well, you all know about celebrities. their problems or you know what all those magazines are about at the checkout counter. So any questions on these points? So this this is the beginning of chapter fifteen. I hope I can get through all this stuff. There's so much in the Gita it's hard to explain all of it. But um, now uh, Krishna follows up this description at fifteen six and I wrote out the uh, the last line of this verse in Sanskrit. Tatama Paramangama that supreme abode of mine. Gama means an abode and uh, that, this is just English, that, if you put an H in it, it's English. So, Tadama, that abode, Paramam Supreme, Mama of Mine. So, here Krishna uses the language which he also uses elsewhere, this is 15.6 in the Gita, of, um, that there is a supreme abode, there is a, there is a supreme world. And what Krishna says is, is kind of dramatic, going there, they never return not because they've been abducted into some crazy world, but the idea is that, that it's a higher world, so people who go back or go to that higher world never return to this world because they recognize that higher world as their real home. And, and Krishna also says, I think it's the same verse, the sun does not illumine that world, nor the moon, the uh, pavaka. One funny little thing, if you're, uh, I'll just throw this in for your amusement, one of the common words for moon in Sanskrit is uh, shashi or shashanka, another common word, shashanka. Uh, the word shasha means rabbit. Rabbit and uh, anka means a mark. So if you look at the moon, the full moon, and you're sort of, you know, in that state of mind, you can kind of <laughs> see, and people in India do see, like we have a man in the moon, because, you know, people interpret the shadows of the moon in different ways. So in India, since ancient times, they see sort of the profile of a bunny rabbit. So, yeah, if you look at the moon, you can kind of, I mean, it's like this, the constellations, you can imagine them as different things, but 
I think it was written years ago, but maybe it's uh, something like that. It's sort of a fat little bunny body. But <laughs> anyway, that's the word Krishna uses for moon in the Gita. It's a very ancient Indian thing, and uh, people in India for thousands of years have been very happy that they are, in fact, seeing this mark of the bunny rabbit on the moon. So, anyway, Krishna says that that world of mind is not illumined by the sun or by the moon nor by fire. It's self-luminous. It's a, it's a self-luminous spiritual world described in other literatures as being that everything there is conscious. Everything there is composed of consciousness. The idea being that, like in this world, say, matter, <coughs> this dead matter is not conscious, but in that world, everything is actually conscious. It's called the chit shakti, the consciousness power of God. So everything there is actually conscious and everything there is eternal. Anyway, any questions on that? Yes? You mentioned that Krishna says that when, once you go back, you never return. Yes. But how did do you get here in the first place? Yeah, that's a real... That, that's been discussed in many ways. In another literature, the Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Purana, which we're going to discuss later, uh, Krishna, again, speak, the speaker in much of the Bhagavatam, says that um, people, we come to this world to try our luck. It's basically to try to, to try to enjoy without God. It's it, and so uh, you know, sort of like running away from home. Like, let me see if I can be happy. And you you try, and, you, and you're allowed to wander around the universe and take birth in any particular species you like, in any planet you like. And if you if you just sort of uh, qualify yourself, you can become a king or a queen or a god or a goddess or a monster, or anything you like. Basically. The universe is totally open, totally free, and uh, even that Richard Dawkins, we've discussed many times, said that he, that, that scientists personally believe that there are thousands of inhabited planets in the universe, if not hundreds of thousands, and so uh, the idea is that there's life throughout the universe, and you can really materially be anything. It's totally open and free, and if at the end of all of this, you can be here for millions of lives or whatever you like, uh, if you finally conclude that you would actually be happier in the spiritual realm, then you can also do what you need to do to go back there. So, sort of the main point is freedom. That uh, there's no jealous God, there's no punishment in, in and of itself just for not being with God, it's just that you're given the freedom. It's almost like a parent who is, says to the child that you can do what you like, and uh, I personally think you'd be happy with your family, but if you want to be somewhere else, that's your choice. Um, it just seems like, you know, this example is good, that's the one you gave about leaving your home, but it seems like in the realm where everything is conscious and it's all the nature of Satchidananda, why would the soul even feel the need to like leave such a... Well consider, well, consider the hippie movement. Well, I guess most of you, well, almost all of you weren't there. I had the honor of... Uh, <laughs> I was actually in Berkeley in the late 60s. I was sort of like right in the middle of my picture. was even on the front page of the Oakland Tribune during a riot. <laughs> yeah, the, right, the open draft board. But anyway, I was sort of, a, I mean, I wasn't actually in the middle of all of it, but I just haven't had my picture taken. I was there to demonstrate, but, but anyway, at that time, it, it was a, they, they had this newspaper called the Berkeley Barb, that was sort of a, well, hippie newspaper. Okay, I'm not allowed to use that word. It's so funny, back then, you couldn't call anyone a hippie. And, and so back then, at like the 60s, you said, are you a hippie? You'd say, hey man, what is that? What's a hippie? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so no one wanted to be called hippie. But anyway, so, so in the Berkeley Barb, I think the way they stayed in business was, like the last several pages of the newspaper were just 
paid ads from parents saying, Johnny, please come home. Everything's forgiven. Billy, you know, Judy, we love you. Please call home. Call collect. And so, and that was like the last set. That was like half the advertising for the newspaper. So, so there are all kinds of people who left often, you know, sort of well-to-do parents and uh, were literally sleeping, you know, on park benches and some places worse than park benches. And so, you know, psychology goes in many ways. We better get back. So people sometimes, so, you know, you can be in a very nice situation, but if, if you want more independence, if you want to try your luck and do your own thing, then even the most opulent situation will not satisfy you. So, uh, moving right along. Then Krishna makes another statement at 1515, which is sort of very important within the tradition of followers of Krishna, which is practically the, one of the main traditions of Hinduism, saying that I am situated in the heart of everyone. That's 1515. And from me, from me, come memory, knowledge, and forgetfulness. In other words, every act of cognition, every time you remember something, if someone says, like, what's your name? and you know the answer to that question, it's actually, according to the Gita, it's God within your heart giving you that information. And when we forget things, if, if someone wants to forget God, it's only by the mercy of God that one can forget God. That God has to empower you with that forgetfulness. So that all of our cognitive acts are actually based on the presence of God within our heart. So that's what Krishna says there. Then uh, Krishna says, by all the Vedas, I alone am to be known. Krishna claims that all the Vedas are really meant to know him. And that uh, he, he says, Vedanta Krit. Krishna claims to be the, the maker of Vedanta. Krishna says that I myself have created the Vedanta and I know the Veda, in fact. So other, I, I mention those statements because they're very important in the tradition. Also, at the end of chapter 15, uh, there's a very important little paragraph, the last uh, five verses of chapter 15, where Krishna very explicitly, emphatically argues that to be liberated, to be enlightened, does not mean to become God. And uh, so may I'll just translate that for you very literally here, uh, and you'll see what he's saying. Krishna says that in this world there are two Purushas. Remember Purusha? Remember we used to do Purusha? Way back when. So Purusha means person. And it sort of is a jargon for soul. So Krishna says there are two kinds of souls in this world. And he says they are the, um, the Kshara, the perishing and the Akshara, the unperishing. Just curious how my friend Graham translated this. Graham Schweig, uh, he says, uh, the two types of persons in the world are these, the perishable and also the imperishable. The perishable consists of all beings. The imperishable is described as those who are situated in the highest state. Literally those who stand at the peak, kutasta. So Krishna is saying there are two kinds of souls in this world. Those who stand at the peak, who are enlightened, who are liberated, free souls, and those who are just trapped in samsara trapped in bodies, and therefore dying, therefore experiencing birth and death, a perishing existence. Those are the two kinds of souls. But then Krishna says, yet there is another, an ultimate person called the Supreme Self. And uh, after Krishna says, I mean, I would translate it, however, Krishna, did he say however? Uh, yet, okay. 
However, there is another. The, the, the supreme person, the highest person, is somebody else. In other words, not one of the enlightened beings. Hey, save the seat for you there. Not one of the enlightened beings and not one of the samsara beings. So the idea that when you become enlightened, you become supreme or become God, not according to the Gita. Krishna says the highest person is someone else, not one of the enlightened beings. And that supreme self is called the Paramatma, the supreme self. And, and it's that supreme self that pervades the three worlds and maintains the world, the unperishing Lord, the Lord Ishwara, also the Yoga Sutra. So they're, so even liberated souls have a Lord. It's not that you become God. That's the idea here. And then Krishna says, because, because, yes, not, because I am beyond the perishing and even beyond the liberated, the unperishing souls, beyond both of them, therefore, adult, therefore, in the world and in the Veda, I am celebrated as the supreme person. That's a very literal translation, by the way. What did Graham do? I helped him translate this, actually. Anyway, so, uh, and then, so, so then you could say, well, uh, that's just when you're talking about Purusha, person. As long as we're in that realm of discourse, we're talking about persons, Krishna's the highest person, and then there are, everyone else is just a regular soul. Now Shankara argues, Shankara argues, that that whole discourse about persons, supreme persons, regular persons, that, remember, that's just conventional talk. That's just like thinking a rope is a snake. And when you become enlightened, there is no talk about Purushas. There's just the one thing which is Brahman. There's no Lord. Remember that? It's, it's just kind of a, a useful, practical, go with it for now delusion. But when you actually become enlightened, there are no persons, there's no higher, no lower, no Lord, no but privates in the spiritual world. You know, there's just the one Brahman, undifferentiated. Krishna is going to knock out that, or at least he's going to speak against that idea, explicitly. Because after explaining that uh, there are two kinds of persons, and I am the above both, he then says, Jolami, well, let's read you the English, okay. Uh, one who unbewildered thus knows me as the ultimate person, the one who, that one, well, anyway, I don't translate my own way, because I think the emphasis really should be somewhere else. Graham should have listened to me. So, um, <laughs> Krishna says, one who thus unbewildered, one who thus unbewildered knows me as the Supreme Person. That person knows everything. That person knows everything. Krishna rules out the idea that, okay, for now let's talk person, but when you're really enlightened, you'll go beyond that. There's no persons. No. He says, if you know me as the Supreme Person, you know everything. You know everything. And Krishna says, such a person uh, worships me with all feelings, sarva-bhavena, or, or with all their existence. Now, Krishna then makes the last point of this chapter, and then we'll move on and rush break uh, next speed to the other chapters. Krishna then makes the point that this Shastra, a Shastra means a, a scripture or an authoritative teaching on any subject. You can have, like, you know, you can have a cooking Shastra or a wrestling Shastra. It just means any authoritative book. And of course here, these are spiritual Shastras. 
from the root shas, which means to command or to, or to act as an authority. So, Krishna says this is the most advanced shastra. Iti among shastram, which I have now spoken to you, and discerning this, one is actually discerning, and one has actually fulfilled all their duties in life. So, Krishna is making the point very briefly, two kinds of persons in this world, the enlightened, the unenlightened, the liberated, those in bondage. However, the highest person is someone else, the Lord. The Lord is, is not one of these two. And that um, if you understand, and Krishna says that I am that Lord, and if you understand God in that way, as the supreme person, you know everything. You've actually got it all, and this is the highest authoritative teaching. So at least as far as the Bhagavad Gita, there are of course obviously different schools of thought in the world, but at least as far as what the Gita is teaching, I think it's quite explicit, quite clear, and amazingly, this is part of the Vedanta apparatus. Remember, there's three prongs, if I can call this a prong, three prongs, that are, or three authoritative books in Vedanta, the Upanishads, the Vedanta, the, the Brahma Sutras that, that seek to systematize <coughs> the Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita. So the Gita is quite explicit. No questions? There's no extra cost for questions. So, chapter 16. Chapter 16 is the one chapter that sort of dwells on bad guys. Because most of the Gita talks about, you know, what it means to be a saint, an enlightened person, how to make progress in various spiritual disciplines. In chapter 16, it's all about the bad guys, uh, the ungodly. And interestingly, the ungodly are characterized as, it's because of their moral character. They, they're cruel, or they, just people that do bad things. And if you ever read the news or hear the news, there are actually people doing bad things in the real world. So, uh, just very briefly, this chapter, Krishna claims that the philosophy of those who are godless is, this is his description, asatya, they claim there is no highest truth in the world. Now, to be agnostic is simply to say, I don't know, or I don't, I don't you know, whatever. But those who actually claim there is no highest object, there is no objective truth. There is nothing but personal opinions. So, so according to Krishna, this is, this particular psychology objects to even the very notion of there being objective truth, the highest truth. And uh, a subject, upper teacher, there's no foundation. The world's not resting on anything. Uh, there's no God, there's no Lord, Anishwara. Interesting, in Sanskrit, uh, Lord Ishwara, in, in many different texts, is not a word for Lord. And so, whoops, un, just not, Anishwara, means sort of literally atheism. That's how they say it in Sanskrit, Anishwara Vada. So, uh, there's no Lord, and aparasparasangbhutam kimanyat kamahaitukam, that everything comes about simply by the interaction of elements. There's no plan, there's no Lord. There's no highest truth, there's no ultimate foundation. Things, you know, material elements are just bouncing off each other. That's the way the world is, the way it is. And, kimanyat, uh, which literally means what else? What else? The, the way the world, now how should I translate this literally? Everyone is selfishly motivated. There is no true altruism. No one really loves anyone else. No one really performs a pure act of goodness. Everyone is pursuing their own selfish interest. And as far as the physical world, there's a bunch of random collisions of physical elements. And as far as the human world, 
everyone is selfish, and that's all there is. That's the world. And any other view, I suppose they would think, is just uh, sentimental and uh, childish and a fantasy. Or, to quote Richard Dawkins, if you think there's real objective purpose in the universe, you are deluded. So, now, um, so that's, that's Krishna's portrayal of the godless psychology. Obviously, some people don't believe in God that aren't this bad. But this is kind of an extreme picture uh, to bring out, like you take certain tendencies and take them all the way. Because ultimately, I mean, it does follow as logically, just in terms of philosophy, never mind religion, that if there is no high, if there is no, nothing like a God, you really could not demonstrate philosophically that any particular moral position is really objectively true. Right? You could say, and this was the argument of David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, that if you see someone, let's say, murdering an innocent person, and you think that, that's evil, that's bad, that's just your own emotions. When you say that is evil, that you just, say, went and shot up a school or something, all you're describing is your own psychology, your own emotions. You're saying nothing about the world outside of yourself. This is, by the way, an argument Socrates uses in discussion with Callicles. So if there is no absolute truth, no higher truth, then you can't really prove that any moral view is objectively true. You're simply describing your own psychology. And in fact, there is a branch of, or a group of scientists who argue that all of our moral instincts, like if we see someone really brutalizing some innocent person, the repulsion and the horror and the anger we feel, we're just genetically programmed to feel that because human communities that feel outraged at those acts had a better survival rate than communities that didn't feel outraged. And so there, nothing is really right or wrong. There really is no right or wrong in the world. And if you, are, if you have the courage to go all the way with the philosophical position that there is no objective right or wrong, there is no real absolute truth, then you have to accept the consequences of it, which are that nothing is really right or wrong. If everything you feel is good or evil in the world, it's simply a physiological sensation. I personally have to say I don't believe this is an accurate uh, description of reality, but it is, philosophically, the consequence of denying any kind of higher truth. And that's, that's so much I, I think I'm prepared to defend that claim, philosophically. So, that's chapter 16. Any question on those things? So, at the end of, cha at the end of chapter 16, um, Arjun has a question. He says, what about people who, re who get reject scripture? What about people that don't accept scripture, and yet, uh, I'm sorry, that's chapter 17, I blew it. At the end of chapter 16, Krishna says, those, uh, that you should accept scripture as authority. You should accept scripture as authority. It's Shastram Pramanam Te. In terms of ascertaining the proper course for your activities. So then Arjuna asks the question, well, but there are a lot of people that don't accept scripture, and yet, they, in their own way, uh, sometimes are religious. They may not accept a scripture, but in their own way, they make offerings, they, they recognize some kind of higher authority, and yet they don't accept scripture. So what's their position? And uh, Krishna gives a very interesting answer to this question. It's not a dogmatic answer. And I, I consider Krishna's answer one of the most philosophically interesting and psychologically interesting sections of the Gita. So I want to talk about this. Uh, 
First, I'll just uh, literally. Well, Krishna says at seventeen-three, which means that faith, faith arises in everyone according to the quality of their existence. And uh, I want to explain. That's a very important philosophical point. I feel which is being made, made, and I think often uh, our present culture is intellectually naive on this point. And there's 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 a certain insight here which would correct some of that naivete in modern intellectualism. And, and I say that because in modern intellectualism there is this often this dichotomy between reason and faith. And so you have science, which is reason and faith, uh, which is a personal belief in something. Now the word, simply to believe that God exists, like often in, in, in Judeo-Christian cultures, if you say, if they, someone asks, do you have faith? It means, do you believe that God exists? That's a different word in Sanskrit. The Sanskrit word, asti, which means he or she exists. Uh, same as in English is. Uh, so from that word, you get the word astikya, which is in the Gita. And so the word whoops. The word astikyam from the word asti, he or she exists, simply means that you accept that God exists. That's not the word Krishna is using here for faith. He's actually using a different word. And the word he's using is shraddha, which is almost always translated as faith. But the word shraddha, uh, shrad means heart, the heart, and uh, oops, and dha means to place. So it means to put your heart in something. And Krishna says, basically, everyone puts their heart into something. Everyone becomes attached to something. So that, for example, let's say you're the most hardcore, no-nonsense, empirical scientist. But you believe that the physical world actually exists outside of your mind. After all, there's another philosophical position called solipsism, which is that there is no objective world outside of your mind. It's all inside your mind. And even if there is a world outside your mind, you can't prove it. Now, an empirical scientist cannot prove there's a real world outside his or her mind. Because let's say I pick up this little clock, which you've all come to know and love, and um, so if I say, yes, of course there's a real physical world, because look, you can see this clock. Now, that is classic circular reasoning. Circular reasoning means I use as an argument the very point I'm trying to prove. Right? In other words, I'm a... I'm giving these arguments to try to prove this point here. And yet I use the very point I'm trying to prove as one of the proofs for itself. So it goes around in a circle. That's circular reasoning. So the idea is, I'm trying to prove there's a real world outside my mind. But only if there's a real world is this a real clock. I mean, never mind not arguing for now. So, in other words, this clock really exists. And my own hand holding it only exists outside my mind only if there's a real world out there. But that's what I'm trying to prove. So I can't use an object in the world to prove there's a real world. That's circular reasoning. Therefore, it's just like in geometry. Nothing given, nothing proved. There's no geometry without, it, without something given. You can't do philosophy unless something is given. And the given thing is assumed to be true. You can't prove it. Because then you'd be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. As I said, people, there tends to be a certain naivete nowadays among so-called intellectuals. And this dichotomy between reason and faith really proves it. Because you can't reason about anything unless you have something given. 
and that which is given you believe is true. Like, for example, if there's a real world out there. Or to, to take another colossal given in empirical science, uniformitarianism. Let's say, for example, we're doing astronomy, which nowadays involves basically the analysis of light. So, let's say light is coming from some, what we believe is a distant star, and we analyze the light, and, and, and because you know, it comes within a certain spectrum, so we assume that it's passed through a certain atmosphere, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, now we assume the laws of nature are operating the same out there on planet ZY70 or something, the laws of nature operate the same as they do on Earth. You can't prove that because you've never been out there. You've never been to that star. But you assume the laws of nature, basic physical laws, as they operate on Earth, operate the same out there. You can't prove that. But you assume it to be true. So just, even to do empirical science, you have to assume all kinds of things to be true. And in religion, you start with certain assumptions. If these assumptions are true, everything else logically follows. If you're being reasonable within your own system. So you can check a system for internal consistency, but every system involves faith. That's what Krishna is saying. Now, what you believe in, what you choose to believe in, we've often heard, for example, religion is a crutch. People choose to believe in a god because somehow it, it does something for them psychologically. I could turn that around and say that atheism is a crutch because in this world, people tend to be vain. People tend to be self-centered, and there are certain psychological rewards in believing that there's nothing better than me in the universe. That there's no power in the universe that has the right or the authority to tell me to do anything. Now, clearly, there are psychological, psychological rewards in that for some people with certain dispositions. I'm not saying, therefore, atheism is wrong, or that people that every atheist is entirely motivated by that. I'm simply trying to say, if we're talking about psychological payoffs and rewards, in a sense, I think the big payoffs are in atheism, not theism. Because in theism, you've got to actually do obnoxious things like submit to higher authority and follow rules and things like that. Whereas in atheism, you get to believe you're the center of the universe. So these kind of cheap shot arguments are not real philosophy. And there, you know, someone could make, if they like, or could try to make good arguments for atheism, that's just not one of them. So the idea here is that, um, that everyone believes in something. Everyone has faith in something. What you believe in is based on the quality of your consciousness. It has to do with your psychology. What kind of consciousness you're in will determine what you take as given the beginning of your metaphysical geometry. You know, what do you think is given? What are you reasoning from? Because if you don't reason from anything, if you have no starting point, uh, you can immediately be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. And as Aristotle pointed out, you break an infinite regress of proofs simply by declaring that something is self-evident. It proves itself. And so what you think proves itself, like, for example, there's a real world outside of my mind, that's just what you take as given. And you believe in it. And it may be true, it may also be true, but um, so Krishna says everyone believes in something. And if someone says, I don't believe in anything, I would simply ask, do you really believe that you don't believe in anything? <laughs> or if someone says, I'm not sure if I believe in anything, I could say, Are you, do you really believe that you're not sure? So the simple point is, everyone equally has faith in something. 
what they believe in may be reasonable or not, it may vary, but everyone has faith. Everyone believes. So to make this dichotomy between reason and faith is a little naive about the actual nature of human consciousness. I had to throw that in. So, uh, anyway, our last few minutes here. Chapter 18, the climax of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, anyway, see, what can I tell you that you probably haven't figured out yourself? Um, okay. Building on what Krishna already just said, what he just said, that everyone believes in something based on the quality of their consciousness, he then explains this, uh, there are other statements that I consider to be extremely important, not just for Hinduism or Vaishnavism, but just for philosophy in general, for people that are trying to understand life. Um, And these are sort of philosophical, psychological statements. Krishna describes in 18, 20 through 22, I believe, he talks about jnana, or consciousness, you know this word by now, I hope, in the three modes of nature. And what he says is fascinating. Krishna says is that those who are in goodness, sattva, what they see is that there is a variety in the world, but behind the variety, like this person, that person, boy, girl, young, old, human, animal, bird, rock, whatever, behind all this variety, there's one unperishing nature. There's a, there's a oneness behind everything. Now think, for example, politically. Think of people who say, look, it doesn't matter what race you are, what ethnicity you are, it doesn't matter what economic position you're in. We're all people, we should all take care of each other, and every person counts. And even if there are some people who are our political enemies, let's see if we can somehow reason with these people and at least try to work toward unity and harmony. Now some people take, but then again, that's subtle, that's uh, goodness. People who are inclined toward virtue tend to see the unity, the oneness, and try to bring about peace and harmony and everything. People, on the other hand, who are in passionate consciousness, what Krishna says is, they take the differences to be fundamental. Like, they're, like, the genders are just different. Men and women are different. People of different races are just different. Americans are just different from Chinese people, or... Humans and animals are just different. The differences are permanent, fundamental, and irreconcilable. And so they live in a world in which things are just, at, at the deepest level, different. And therefore, it's us and them. So what Krishna is saying is that this, these are different qualities of consciousness. And finally, in the movie uh, prize here, ignorance, basically, is just not thinking. person thinks, I'm doing this right now, I don't care about the world. Just sort of like oblivious to the world. Doesn't care about the world at all. So Krishna says that people come to these different views, not merely intellectually, but by the quality of their consciousness. People who are systematically cultivating virtue in their life will naturally see the oneness, the harmony. People who are very passionate will tend to fall into these polarities and dualities and conflicts. I mean, there are some people like that. They just can't say I have conflicts. Yes? Whatever they're doing right now, all they care about is what they're doing right now. They just, they're just, they just really don't care about anything or anyone else. It's just what I'm doing right now. Sometimes even it seems like people in the they don't really get so concerned with the world. They're kind of like over it or they're not so affected by the world. 
they don't get involved in everyday like things in the world? No, it's not just a question of getting being an activist. I think it's a question of how you here. It's how you see the world. It's not. It's not simply being. I think goodness would entail some level of compassion. Someone may not be politically inclined or may not be an activist, but they actually, how they understand things, how they see things, is more what Christian's talking about here. It's gyanam, as opposed to, say, action in different modes. So, uh, then happiness. Happiness. Krishna makes a very interesting statement about happiness. Is everybody happy? Um, Krishna says that in the mode of Goodness. He says happiness and goodness in the beginning is like poison. And then it turns to nectar. Nectar means like ambrosia. In other words, let's say uh, you decide not to totally pig out on junk food. And you decide you get get some exercise. And so, and so you just, you know, you give up maybe an urge to just totally go hog wild with all the wrong kind of food. And instead, you eat moderately, and then you, you get some exercise, you keep yourself healthy. At the end of it, you've got this really fit, healthy, strong body, and so you feel great. And so in the beginning, it might have been like, like Krishna used the word, vishamiva, like poison, like, okay, I've got to give up this, I can't do that, I've got to do this, I've got to practice, I've got to train. But at the end, uh, you're in a great state. Whereas Krishna says, happiness and passion... In the beginning, it's like nectar. In the end, it's like poison. In other words, self-indulgence. Like right now, if it feels good, do it, which is one of the great battle cries of the 60s, it feels good, do it. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, those of you in your generation, you can see now some of the uh, wonderful results of that. So, anyway, there's a type of happiness which is self-indulgence. Self-indulgence, which in the end leads to all kinds of trouble in life. So in the beginning, it's like, yeah, great, I do whatever I like. But at the end, you've got problems. And then Krishna says that happiness and ignorance, the beginning, middle, and ending, is just kind of like, doesn't make sense. It's just going nowhere at any point. Like, you know, I makes me happy to go out and, uh, you know, beat up certain kinds of people or something, or something just really irrational. It, I mean, and some people call things like that happiness, but it's really just totally missing the boat. That's what Krishna's saying. So those are the different kinds of happiness. Uh, and then, well, there's no time left. So at the end, here's the grand finale in one minute or two minutes. The Gita comes to this grand finale. This like, you know, it's like a great symphony that ends with this great crescendo. And um, the crescendo begins, oh my God, I'll have to say this next time. There's some, there's some really good stuff right Anyway. At the end of the Gita, it gets very personal and very intimate. And Krishna says over and over and over again that I actually care about you, that you're, that, that I, that, uh, and just, if you simply depend upon me, I'll do it for you. So, a very devotional thing. The one thing I wanted to say, you, you can read these last several verses of the Gita. It gets very, uh, very devotional and very um, intimate and personal. Krishna gets very, very personal at the end of the Gita. But before then... Uh, Krishna describes the caste system, the famous, universally admired caste system of India. And what's interesting is that Krishna says, I counted seven times, if not seven or eight times, this one little section, that the varnas, the castes, are based on your own nature. It's not by birth. 
The system Krishna is describing, he said the same thing in chapter 4, chapter of Varnya Mayasya, Guna Karma Vibhagasya. Krishna describes almost eight, nine or ten different times in the Gita that your caste, whether you're Brahman, Kshatriya, Vaishya, it's by your nature, it's by your own qualities, by your own abilities. He never says it's by birth, it's always by your qualities. In other words, your position in society just depends on what you're naturally inclined to do. And he says this over and over and over and over again. So this caste system, which was frozen by birth, a hereditary caste system is actually nothing, it's, it's not described in the Gita. Krishna is describing a system based on your nature. You follow your own nature. So, oh, one last thing. Oh my God, one more minute. Uh, 1866 is perhaps it's one of the most famous verses in the Gita, where Krishna makes this very radical statement that to give up all dharmas and to come to me alone for shelter. And this is one of the most powerful themes in Bhakti. Somehow, a person who fully gives himself to God. Uh, somehow rises above all kinds of lower duties, not moral duties, but moral duties within the Vedic system. So I'm not going to press my luck anymore. See you Friday.